Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all this morning. And welcome to anyone who may be visiting with us this morning. We're glad to have you here. Uh, This morning, uh, or this weekend actually, Pastor Greg uh, is not here. Um, He's spending the weekend with Rini, his wife. Uh, It is their wedding anniversary uh, coming on Tuesday. And so they're taking time to just be with uh, each other this weekend. Uh, But it is my pleasure, and I'm so grateful to be here to uh, teach God's Word. And I pray that uh, God's Word would change and shape us. That's my prayer every week, that as we open His Word, it would change and shape our hearts to love and adore Him more. So if you haven't turned already, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3, whether in your Bible or your Matthew journal. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, Thank you, Pastor Ray, for reading that for us wonderfully. I want to ask this question to start this morning. Can someone really change? I mean, really change. Can a person who lives one way and acts one way and thinks one way really change and start living a different way? I mean, take a moment and consider your own thoughts on this. Maybe you haven't thought about this question in a while, and yet maybe your actions toward others or your thoughts toward others actually reveal what you think about it. Do you see potential in people to change? Are you open when someone seems to have changed? Or... Are you skeptical and closed off of change? These reactions might tell us a little bit about ourselves. Now, change can take many forms, and our culture is constantly telling us we need to change in so many different ways. I mean, it might be a physical change where we feel like we need to uh, lose weight or get in shape. Maybe it's a mental change. In a period of anxiety, we're seeking peace. Maybe it's a relational change in pursuing a different kind of relationship or a different person we might never have been with before. But the most important change of all is spiritual change. For truly, it affects every area of our lives. For when we've been spiritually changed, we're changed to the core of who we are. Maybe you're here this morning because someone invited you or you're visiting for the first time and you're not a Christian. You you don't know much about what this faith is about And you're not sure you really believe in any kind of spiritual change. Well, I hope this morning you'll be convinced by God's word. But I also hope that you'll see that this room is full of Christians. And Christians are changed people. Christians are not perfect people. I mean, you can go around the room and and meet each and every one of us. But we are changed people. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a Christian But you know there's some areas of your life that need change. Maybe some areas in your walk with the Lord that you'd like to be transformed. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian. And uh, you've changed in your own walk with God. But maybe you treat others like change is impossible in them. You find yourself thinking thoughts of, that person would never, never want to hear about God. Well, my prayer this morning is that for those who aren't Christians, we would see the glory, you would see the glory of God in this passage and be changed. My prayer for Christians is that as changed people, we would continue to be transformed and look more and more like Jesus. 
The biblical word for change is repentance. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what this passage is going to be about. And repentance really carries much more meaning than just change. And we're going to get into that this morning. But before we dive in, I want to look back a bit. So we've been in this series on Matthew. We've been going through the book of Matthew. Uh, We did Matthew chapter 1 two weeks ago, Matthew chapter 2 last week. This week we're in Matthew chapter 3. But I want to just recap because at the end of last week we didn't finish out chapter 2. We saw last week that these wise men came to worship Jesus. The title of the message was Worship the King. And we saw their faith and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. We also saw how last week how Herod the king of Israel, was prideful. And when he heard of this king that was coming, he became very jealous and very prideful. We learn that that Herod was actually quite a wicked man. And when he doesn't find out where Jesus is, he orders this decree for all male babies in the area of Bethlehem and all Judea around it to be murdered under the age of two years old. What a wicked and horrible thing. But last week, we also saw that God provided for Joseph and his family. He made provision for them to flee to Egypt and so be safe. At the end of chapter 2, we're told that Herod has died. We see that time has passed and he's died. And then the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. and He says, Herod has died. Take your family back to the land of Israel now. But... On the way, as they're journeying back to the land of Israel, they become afraid because though Herod is no longer there, Herod's son is there, and they're, they're fearful. And so the Lord again speaks to Joseph and says, okay, don't go to this area of Judea, which is where Bethlehem was and Jerusalem was. It's in this area, this region of Judea. Don't go there. Instead, you're gonna go north to the region and area of Galilee. That's north above it. And that is the region that the city of Nazareth is in. And the scripture actually tells us that this fulfills prophecy because Jesus was supposed to be a Nazarene. And so uh, Joseph and his family journey up and end up in Nazareth. But between chapter 2 and chapter 3, there's a jump in time. There's actually quite a significant jump, about 25 years. Jesus was just a young boy at the end of chapter 2, but now as we come into chapter 3, he's quite a bit older. He once was a boy, but now he's a man. And we see a different scene. John the Baptist comes preaching. So now that we're caught up to chapter three, let's go through what is happening in chapter three. What did Ray read for us, and what are we being led through in this chapter? Well, first, John the Baptist, a prophet, shows up preaching. This is the first prophet in over 400 years. This is significant. A prophet from God has come preaching. And his message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We then see that these people are coming out to John, and John is baptizing them as they confess their sins. But he's not without opposition. These religious leaders called the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out to John and contest him. These are are people who outwardly look righteous, but in their hearts they do not trust God. This is our first introduction to them in the book of Matthew, but we certainly are not finished with them. It won't be our last. 
they interact with Jesus often. And often they're some of the harshest recipients of, of Jesus' judgment and Jesus' harshest words. They do not display a changed heart, but rather they try to win God's favor and the favor of others by their good deeds. The word for these men would be self-righteous. And finally, we see after this interaction with the leaders that Jesus comes down from the region of Galilee back to the region of Judea, which is where John is baptizing, and he comes down to be baptized by John. And when John baptizes Jesus, we see a wonderful and awesome moment in Scripture. The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove, and the heavens open, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is a beautiful moment that we see the Trinity in action, and it ought to draw us to deeper worship of God. This is what happens in chapter 3. So as we jump in this morning, I told you that we're going to talk about repentance. We're going to talk about change in the life of a person. But let me give you a roadmap for where we're going this morning. Let me give you sort of an outline of our text and what we're going to be going through. So the first thing we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the message of repentance. This is what John brings. Second, we're going to talk about the sign of repentance, namely baptism. Third, we're going to talk about the need for repentance. And fourth, and finally, we're going to talk about the hope of repentance. So let's dive into our text and let's see what God has for us this morning. If we start in verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John is preaching this message, Repent and change. Turn to the Lord. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is very near. The king is coming. John is saying that these people have walked away from God. They do not believe in God. They do not trust God. And so he pleads with them. Change, turn back to God. This is actually the same message that we're going to see Jesus first bring when he starts his ministry. It happens just a chapter later in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus starts his ministry and his first words are these same words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is also our message today. As Christians... We invite others to repent because God's kingdom is coming. Christian, if all we do is invite people to church as if it's a social club, we've missed the reality of what it means to be a Christian. I'm not saying that we're to yell at people to repent or or be harsh with people or anything like that. We're to treat all people with love. But if there is no message coming from us that repentance is, is necessary, that people ought to change, to turn, and to believe in God, we do a disservice to the message of the gospel. We ought to lovingly, in relationship, bring the truth of God to people and plead that they turn to God. We're going to deal more with the why a little bit later in our sermon. Uh, He says, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but let's talk about repentance for a moment. Let's, let's, Let's chat about this. So many people define repentance as simply to change one's mind. 
And I think that's correct, but I think it's much more than that. Repentance involves the mind, the heart, and the actions. And repentance isn't just like a tweak or a change of direction in our lives. It's a total transformation of our mind, our heart, and our will. You used to think one way about the world. You used to think one way about religion and and yourself and God. But repentance means you've now heard the truth and your your thinking has been changed. You used to feel one way about your own heart. Maybe you were looking and longing for happiness in something, trying to find it wherever you could. When mistakes came up, and obviously they did because all of us make mistakes and all of us are sinners. And when mistakes happened, you probably just hid them. That is the natural reaction of man. I mean, we see that in the very first sin. Adam and Eve sin, and the first thing they do is hide. And that's all of our reaction to. Maybe you hid those sins, or maybe you tried to numb those sins. But now, your heart has been changed. You now know that your heart is made for God. And now, you feel remorse over those actions that are against God. You feel that grief. But it doesn't just stay in our hearts and our minds. The way we live can't be the same. We can't go on living and doing the same things that we once did because we think and feel differently now. Our actions look different. Repentance brings about a change in the heart, the mind, and the actions. But it's very possible to start thinking a little different, feel a little bit of remorse about what we've done, and change a few behaviors but miss what biblical repentance is. Biblical repentance is when we come to the end of ourselves. Biblical repentance is not, oh, I have all these areas that I need to fix, and so now I have a new game plan. This is my plan. This is how I'm going to fix myself and my behaviors and change who I am. No, biblical repentance is when we've come to the end of ourselves, and we have no other place to turn than to the arms of God. We run to the grace of God. It's marked by a turning from ourselves to God. This is the picture of biblical repentance. We don't just have a new game plan. We run to God. And John, uh, he paints some of this picture later on in this chapter. If you look at verse 8, when he's speaking to the Pharisees, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, John is going to use this illustration in the scripture of a tree and its fruit. What he's saying is that he's trying to show us that if there's true transformation in our hearts and minds, it will affect how we live. What he's saying is if the root is changed, the fruit will be changed. And so he's, he's giving us this holistic picture of repentance. It's not just a change of the mind. It affects our hearts and it affects our will and it affects our actions. This is the picture he's giving us. So this is the picture of repentance that we see. This is the message that John brings. But let me be real for a second. We can't do this on our own. We don't have the power, the capacity, or the goodness to start living rightly. We need God to transform our hearts. Repentance is a wonderful mystery. Because in one sense... We are very active in getting to the end of ourselves, turning and running to God. But in another sense, 
It is totally dependent on the grace of God. We can't change our own hearts. We have to come before God on our knees and say, Lord, we need you. Repentance and faith are are really just two sides of the same coin. We talk about belief in God a lot. We use that phrase. We use the phrase, believe in God. What must you do to be saved? Believe in God. But I think if uh, when we, there's a subtle error that we can get into. And that would be that all we have to do to be saved is to believe that facts about God are true. But belief in God in the scriptures involves something much more. It involves repentance. You can't have true belief without repentance. Now, the kind of repentance that I'm talking about mostly and in this chapter and what John is bringing is when a person first puts their faith and trust in God. But as every Christian in this room knows, we need continual repentance in our lives because we are not perfect people. I mean, Christians are slow growers. Our sanctification is just painstakingly slow sometimes. Can I get an amen? I mean, sometimes it's just like, God, I just, I I wanted to be, I wanted to look more like Jesus by this point, you know? But it's just slow. But if you're here this morning and you're feeling a bit discouraged by your growth as a Christian, let me just speak to you. God's grace never runs out. His grace never runs out. Maybe you need this reminder. Maybe you're just discouraged by your own lack of growth or your walk with God. But when you misstep, you fall, maybe you've turned your back on God. Turn right back around to him. He's waiting with forgiveness. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. We sang that earlier. We're going to see at the end of this message um, how that forgiveness comes about. But we'll get there a little later. Now, I haven't mentioned much about John yet. John the Baptist is the preacher in this text. And the Bible actually tells us much about him. But I just want to mention two things that we see in this text. The first thing that we see is that he fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Verse 3, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This was an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And John fulfills the prophecy. And then the second thing that we see about John is that he was poor. Now, we read verse 4. Now, John uh, wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. We read that, and in our culture, we go, this guy's crazy. He eats locusts and honey and wore camel's hair. But really, this uh, garb and this food was quite common for those who lived in the desert, which is the area he was in. And really, what it denotes to us is that he was quite poor. And these weren't super uncommon things for people uh, who lived in the desert. We're going to see even later that John has this attitude about him where he says, I'm not even worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus. And so right off the back, we see that John is humble. We see a humility in John. This morning, we're talking about repentance, and we're talking about it in our own lives But as Christians, this is also the message that we bring to the world. 
But we shouldn't miss this. We ought to bring this message with humility, with the utmost humility. Because when we've realized that we are sinners in need of grace, how can we not be humble when we bring that same message to others? Okay, so first we see the message of repentance. The second thing we see is the sign of repentance. This is baptism. Look at verses five and six. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now baptism is the external expression of the inward reality of repentance. Our minds, our hearts, our lives have been changed, and baptism is the sign that represents that. The, the word uh, baptize in the Greek means, uh, it's baptizo, and it means to plunge, to dip, or to immerse. So the act of water baptism is plunging someone into the water and then bringing them back out of that water. But what does it mean? Well, actually, at this time, the Jews already had the practice of baptism. This wasn't like revolutionary, the the idea of baptizing, although John's meaning is going to be different. But the Jews, what they would use baptism for is when somebody who wasn't a Jew might want to convert to Judaism. They would be baptized. It would symbolize a a, a washing of, a, a, a cleansing of sin, a washing away of impurity as someone who wasn't a Jew now coming into Israel. But John's baptism has a deeper meaning. John has a baptism of repentance. And this repentance is needed by everyone. Every Jew needs to repent just as much as every Gentile. We even see this later down. Uh, The Jewish leaders come out to, to see what John is doing. And one of the things he basically tells them is, you can't rely on your race and you can't rely on your family. You must repent also and be baptized. But even John's baptism is pointing us forward. John's preparing the way, and he's pointing us to what Christian baptism really is. So I want to look specifically at verse 11 as, as we look to what baptism is really about. He says, this is John speaking, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, so we're going to take one of these at a time, the Holy Spirit and fire. First, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Well, let's remember, baptism means to be immersed. Water baptism, immersed in water. The spiritual reality of baptism for the believer is to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Matthew is actually pointing us forward to this beautiful reality that Jesus is going to tell us about later in the book of Matthew, that Jesus is going to say, whenever I ascend to heaven, something great is going to come, the Spirit of God is going to come and is going to dwell within every believer. This is what he's pointing to. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes us. He's the only one who can change someone. I mean, we, t- we talked about this. Repentance is not something we can do alone. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. The Holy Spirit changes us. And the Holy Spirit gives us himself. 
God is with us. This is absolutely amazing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the moment that somebody believes in God. They are changed. They are made new. And the Holy Spirit is with them. Now, water baptism happens at some point after this. Could be close after, could be a little farther after. But that's okay because it's just a symbol that points to that spiritual reality. But water baptism is important. It's commanded. It's something we ought to do as followers of Jesus, and it's something beautiful. And it has great biblical symbolism and meaning. What it illustrates is the passing through of the waters of death and judgment into life. We're being brought through safely to the other side because God has saved us from those things. We go through death and into new life. The clearest biblical example or imagery that we get is in the flood in Genesis. Peter, the apostle, makes this connection very clear for us in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. I'm not going to read it, but he makes that connection. Baptism corresponds to that biblical imagery of the flood, the waters of death and judgment. And yet we are brought through safely to the other side. We haven't got yet to how Jesus plays into baptism, but we will get there at the end of our message. But the main point is that this, uh, this passage connects us to the symbolism of the flood, and we see the symbolism of death into life. Like I said, water baptism is a wonderful thing. It's a command, but it's also a gift. We get to celebrate new life together as a church. We should rejoice at every baptism of every new believer. I mean, it should remind us, similarly to how when we go to a wedding, we think of our own marriage. It, it impacts us greatly because we're, we're, we're brought to think of our own marriage and the love that we have for each other. Similarly, when we go to a baptism, we should be reminded of that moment that we first believed. We should be reminded of the grace and the mercy that God has given us. It should be a celebration It's this outward sign and this physical baptism that represents the spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit that that takes place when we believe. So if that's, oh, and I want to mention one more thing. If you're here and you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, I invite you to do this. On October 18th, we're going to do a baptism service at the beach just next month. Come join us. We would love for you to be baptized and to get to celebrate that with you. And if you're a Christian here who's already been baptized, please come to the service so we can rejoice together. So if that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what is the baptism of fire? Now, there's many views on this as, as I was studying this, but I'm going to share mine. I'm going to tell you why I believe that it's the uh, correct view and why I've landed here. So fire represents several different things in Scripture. One of the things that it first and foremost represents is the presence of God. We see this in the burning bush where he show, God shows up to Moses in this burning bush and speaks to him. We also see it when God leads the people of Israel in the desert with a pillar of fire. It denotes his presence. But it also means different things whether you are a believer in God or not a believer in God. For the believer in God, it can denote a purifying fire, one that shapes us and makes us to look more like Jesus. 
But for the unbeliever, it's a fire of judgment. Now, in this text, many people assume because of the Old Testament imagery that I just talked about with God's presence and the uh, refining and purifying and the joining of the Holy Spirit and fire together, that phrase together, many think that it refers to the purifying fire in the life of a believer. I do not believe that is what Matthew is referring to. And let me tell you why. I believe that this baptism of fire is an immersion of those who don't believe into God's judgment and eternal punishment. But let me show you why. First, the context of this verse. If we look at verse 10, the imagery of fire is used to speak of judgment. If we look at verse 12, the imagery of fire is used to speak of judgment. And so logically, verse 11, we would think that the imagery of fire would be used to speak of the same thing. And the second, and this is really compelling to me, nowhere else in scripture, when it speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, does it mention fire except for one other place. It always just speaks of the Holy Spirit. Now that other place is the book of Luke. It's the same moment in time. Now, all four Gospels record this event. They all record John the Baptist coming and preaching. They all record Jesus' baptism. But they have differences. In the book of Mark, in the book of John, the phrase is just baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's no fire added. In Matthew and in Luke, fire is added. Well, why? Well, Matthew and Luke include these words about God's judgment. Mark and John don't. And so I think that's compelling evidence that this is what he is referring to. And this brings us to the third part of our sermon, the need for repentance. Now we saw that John came declaring, repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is coming. The need is that the kingdom is coming, which means the king is coming, and when he comes, he will judge all people. Those who have repented and who have put their faith in Jesus will receive the everlasting reward of eternal life with God. But for those who have not repented and put their faith in Jesus, they will experience the everlasting torment of hell. We see this uh, played out in John's interaction with the Pharisees. First, let's look at verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What he's saying is that if a tree does not bear good fruit, if a person's life does not bear good fruit, you can tell that the root is bad, that the heart has not gone through repentance. And if there is no repentance, that person will be thrown into the fire. Verse 12, we see the same type of imagery, but a little bit different. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is imagery that's used in Psalm chapter 1. And basically what he's saying is that the wheat are the repentant believers. And so he separates the wheat from the chaff, and the chaff are those who don't believe, and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. This is the great need for repentance. 
A person's attitude toward God is of the utmost importance in all the world. And the verdict is that every single human being has dishonored God in his heart. The only way to be saved is to repent of our dishonor and trust in Jesus Christ. The need for repentance is great in our world because the kingdom of heaven is coming one day fully. We see that the king comes and Jesus is bringing the kingdom with him, the reign and the rule of God to earth in this time. But as Scotty so clearly pointed out to us earlier, there will be a second coming of the kingdom in which the kingdom will fully come to earth, in which Jesus will come to judge the earth. This is the great need. Those in Christ will be saved and those outside of Christ will be thrown into the fire of hell. Christian, we have a very serious message to bring to the world. We must bring it humbly. We must bring it because the world needs it. But let us also remember our great need of Christ. Let us also rejoice at his grace for us and bring it with the joy and the expectation that we will see God move and others will repent and believe in him. Weighty is the reality of the perfect holiness of God. Weighty is the reality of sin and hell. And so we come to the last point of our message. What hope is there for mankind? And this is the hope of Christ. This is the fourth part of our message this morning. The hope of repentance. Jesus comes and is baptized by John. Now, we've spent much time this morning talking about baptism, talking about repentance. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? He does not sin. He does not need to repent. And baptism is the symbol of repentance. Well, verse 15 tells us, let me read it for us. We see that first, well, let's, let's back up. Let's go to verse 13. We see that first, John is reluctant to baptize Jesus because he knows Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So Jesus says he needs to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. It was the command of God and the plan of God for Jesus to be baptized. And he perfectly obeyed every command of the Father. But, bapti- but the baptism of Jesus also shows us what's to come. It points us forward to the cross. Jesus was perfect and sinless, never to err, never to make a mistake. We see this when the Father says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The only one ever which with God could say this because he was without sin. Uh, If you remember back in Matthew chapter 1, hopefully you remember because it was just a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Greg taught us in that sermon that Jesus 
was first racially qualified to be king. He came from the line of Israel. Second, we saw that Jesus was royally qualified to be king. He came from the root of David, the line of the king. Here, we see that Jesus is morally qualified to be king. He did not err. He did not sin. But Jesus, though sinless and perfect, will soon go through the waters of death and God's judgment upon the cross. But he will come through the other side. He will rise from the grave. Jesus was raised back to life, rising through the waters of death and judgment to victory and life. This is the hope of the gospel. Jesus overcame the sin and the punishment we deserved. And this means that our repentance and thus our faith in him puts us with him in his death and his resurrection to new life so that we have new life. Two scriptures. One, Colossians 2 uh, verse 12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We are joined with him in baptism. And then Romans three, verse, uh, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4 say this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the great hope of repentance. Jesus went to the cross for us. Jesus went through the waters of death and God's judgment and rose back to life so that by faith in him we could do the same. This is our hope. We are united with Christ. We are in Christ. We are saved because of Christ. This is our king. Not a king of pride like Herod, but a king of humility. A king who would lay down his life for the broken and needy. We see the heart of Christ in his love for the sinner. And we are all sinners. As we come to the close of this passage, I want to point out one last thing. We see that John has proclaimed the coming of the king. He has made way for the king. And this king is triply crowned. First, he wears the crown of heaven as the son of God. Truly, he reigns over all things, all people, and all time. We see he is the son of God. This is my beloved son. And so he reigns as king over all the universe. Second, we see that he's the king of his people. He's the king of his people. You are my beloved son. Traces back to Psalm chapter 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God gives David this uh, prophecy to come, that he will have a son from his family who will have a kingdom that reigns forever. And this is the king of his people. So second, we see that he's crowned the king of his people. But lastly, and third, we see that he's crowned with the crown of thorns. 
He's the only one who is truly perfect, and yet he suffered for you and for me. He is the suffering king. The only reason that baptism works, that this reality of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and then later celebrated through the Son, the only reason that all that works is because Christ went through death and into life. You just can't do it on your own. You need Jesus Christ. As we close, I'd like to invite the band to uh, come back on the stage. And I want you to consider where you're at this morning. Maybe you're someone who's here and you're visiting and you have never come to know God. You've, you've, you're not a Christian and you've never put your faith in God. Well, I invite you this morning to repent and to turn to God. His grace is unending. Run to him. Run to him. Jesus paid the debt that you owe. All you need to do is repent and trust in the work of Christ. Are you here this morning? A Christian. And yet, maybe there's some areas in your life that you feel the Lord putting on your heart right now. These are some areas that you haven't given over to the Lord yet. You haven't turned and given to him. I encourage you, turn to God. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Repent of those things. Run to God and run to his grace. I mean, if the only encouragement I can give you this morning is that his grace never runs out. Though our sins are many, his mercy is more. Ask God to create a new heart in you. Turn back to God. And lastly, maybe you're a Christian here this morning, but maybe you lack the, the faith or the belief that God can change someone in your life. Maybe you're thinking of someone right now who you've just longed to come to Christ, and yet you felt they're just too far gone. They hate God. They're not going to listen to me about God. Have faith. Believe that God can do whatever he pleases. Nothing is impossible for God. He can change whoever he wills. I mean, we should all be a testament to that. We are changed people. Christians are changed people. If you guys would please stand with me. I'd like to invite um, any of the prayer team that we have here and any of the elders um, to come forward and, and stand on the sides. And I want to take time right now just to reflect, to reflect on those three questions and, and where you might be at this morning. We're going to take a moment and just ask the Lord to lead us in repentance in whatever area we need to. And then when we come back, we're going to sing one last song. So let's take that time now. You can either pray where you're at. You can come forward and receive prayer from one of our prayer partners. Whatever you need to do with the Lord now.